you have your Bibles, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. This is our last sermon in this particular series in 2 Peter. There's been seven of them. So as we come to this text, I want to remind you where we were last week. Uh, the Apostle Peter answered two questions. How can we be sure that, that God is going to intervene in human history? That Jesus really is going to come and judge evil and, and sin? And then secondly, the question is, why hasn't it happened yet? Why is he waiting so long? So he answered the first question by saying, well, the creation and the flood prove the fact that God really does intervene in human history. But he answers the second question like this. He says, right and wrong are absolute categories, but fast and slow are not. God is patient toward you. So he's in fact inviting you to repentance. So here Peter answers two other questions. What will happen when Jesus returns? And then how do we live in light of his return? And so we pick up 2 Peter chapter 3. I am going to read verse 9 uh, and following through 18. This is God's word. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens. And a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray for his help now. Father, we approach your word recognizing that it is not uh, black and white on a page, but it is your very word spoken and written, and so now we ask for the ministry of your Holy Spirit to accompany the reading and the preaching of your word. Would you give us as your people the ears to hear what you would say to us, and would you likewise be willing to use again an ordinary sinful crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus? In whose name we pray. Amen. You know, there's facts, and then there's what you do with facts. Studying for this sermon, I came across several studies which confirm something that's probably very obvious 
to most of you already, and that is that most people are not swayed by facts. For one thing, when confronted with facts, most people tend to immediately doubt the source. We're skeptical. Well, how do I know that your facts aren't meant to slant my opinion into your agenda? The other reason that's actually commonly cited in some of these studies is that the feeling of being right is so compelling to our hearts that most of us have something like an emotional barrier to to facts that contradict our own existing point of view. In other words, emotions can cloud your interest in facts or rather what you choose to do with them. Because again, there's facts and then there's what you do with facts. But to be clear, this is not simply an issue for hardened skeptics out in the public sphere. It's not just an issue for politicians and politics. It's not just an issue for big hot button issues of our day. In fact, even the most sincere listener to a Sunday morning sermon faces the exact same issue. There's facts and then what you do with facts. Here's what I mean. Even a sincere believer in Christ who comes to the Bible with faith, who believes that what we're doing here and now is studying God's Word, we we believe together that it is true. And yet the challenge for most of us is not to believe that it's true. It's to consistently live it out. And so in Peter's day, there's some who said, well, there's no coming judgment. And then, of course, they drew from that the implication, so therefore you can do whatever you want. Christ isn't returning. There's no moral, ethical standard. Do whatever feels good. But to the Christian, the fact that Christ is coming to judge the world and to to purify it with fire and to renew it in righteousness, what do you do with the facts? Are Are you lazy? Are you discouraged by the fact, oh no, he's coming? No. No, the doctrine of divine judgment leads to purpose and perseverance. And so as Christ transforms you, you become honestly prepared and holy, hopeful, and then diligently stable. Those points are listed in your bulletin for you. Verse 9 presents for us a question that I didn't address last week because of an issue of time. Look at it again. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, how do you square these two facts? On one hand, that God does not wish that any should perish... And yet he sovereignly elects some to salvation and others he doesn't. Is that a contradiction? What's the line of thinking that would naturally lead us to universalism? It would lead us to the view that in the end, uh, surely God doesn't want anyone to be cast into hell. He's going to have to then in that line of thinking save everybody from their sins. If he doesn't wish anybody to perish, then nobody's going to come under divine judgment. It's actually a great question. And if we study that question, it helps us with a healthy understanding of verse 10. Here's how you make sense of what appears to be a contradiction. Uh, Number one, we are talking about the mind and will of an infinite God. You have to begin there. It's not possible to reduce what is infinite into the precise categories of the minds of those who are finite in our brains. He's God. 
and you and I aren't. And so the Bible always allows us to to not only see that tension, but to feel it. His will and his comprehension of it, and excuse me, his will and your comprehension of it are actually vastly different. Number two, because the Bible is written to human beings with finite minds, it is written with language that is meant to accommodate the ways that you and I think or speak. And so the Bible tells us about things which are vastly beyond our comprehension, but it accommodates our sensibilities by using human terms that give us something to grab hold of. The same way that the Bible refers to God's hand or God's arm. God's a spirit. He doesn't have a hand or an arm. But he uses that vocabulary so that you and I have something kind of close whereby we can understand the concept. And so we come to a text like this and it speaks of God's patience or his wishing or his desires. Those are really human terms to make sense for human beings who have thoughts and emotions. Number three, In the Bible, there's a distinction between the desired will of God and the decreed will of God. How come? Because he's the sovereign king of the universe. In one sense, he may desire something to come to pass and yet not decree it to come to pass. Verse 9 intends to summon God's people to repentance. You have to come to the text and go, what's the purpose of a verse like this? Well, we're supposed to to live in the power of this tension. Will you, will I rightly respond to God's patience? Will you and I be the people who come to repentance? He says something very similar in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32. There God says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, so turn and live. You see, what God's doing is he's, he's summoning or eliciting a response repent and and live and it's written in such a way that you and I have the the very clear sense that all I need to do is is repent I'm the one left to to decide to do that so God really does desire that all should repent of their sins and at the same time he has not in the text decreed to act to make that happen He has not decreed that all would receive the supernatural inner working of the Holy Spirit in order to make that happen. And so you and I could sit back and go, huh, well, that's cold, or that seems like double talk. How can he desire it and yet not decree it? Somebody might even say, well, that's unfair. In which case we have to ask this question. Are you and I not under sin and guilt and rebellion against God? Were we not all deserving of death and condemnation? Yes. Does God in some sense owe to give us mercy? No. And so if in his, desi- in his divine wisdom, he would on one hand desire that everyone should come to repentance, that doesn't put him under obligation to decree that everyone will repent. And yet, it is sitting in your lap. You cannot figure out whether he has decreed it. You are invited to repent. The truth is, as a sovereign king of the universe, the Bible leaves us in a tension 
that could certainly defy human understanding, which is, which is where faith and trust comes in. But ultimately, God receives the greatest glory, not from universally saving everyone, but from mercifully being willing to save some. And would you be one of those? Praise God, He's offered salvation to you and to me. There's the fact. Then what do we do with the facts? This is really how verse 9 and verse 10 connect. What's the intention of the letter? It's intending to make God's people be prepared for His coming. And He does it by answering a question. How will it happen when it does come? Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Why is the return of Jesus called the day of the Lord? If you study the Old Testament, you would go, well, that's actually a very common way that it's spoken of. That the day of judgment is, is always called the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. But I want you to see what's wrapped up in the idea. What would you mean if you approached someone and you said, hey, today is your big day. Today is your day. It might be their birthday, could be their wedding or their anniversary, maybe it's graduation. Whatever it is, you're saying today is, is a big day for you. Things might really revolve in your direction, but friends, how long did it take you to realize that there is really no such thing as your day? My third grade teacher was absolutely uninterested when I turned eight to nine. It made no difference in her life at all. Moreover, I had the spelling test that day, and the kid behind me still put glue in my chair. You see, of course, it'll never really be my day. It'll never really be your day. But the day of the Lord in the Bible is, is different. The day of the Lord is really different. God's day, where the entire world, the universe, the cosmos stops. And suddenly, everything in all creation that was always directed toward the Lord and His glory is known to have been directed always towards His glory. The day of the Lord is actually the, eye, the day that your eye and mine and everybody else's eye will see what has always been true. And Peter and Paul and Jesus all tell us that the day will come like a thief. Which is meant to draw out in every sincere Christian the need to be prepared, to be ready in fact, there's no other definite sign. I got out of the shower last night. It's about 8 o'clock. And the sky is weirdly orangish pink after it's been dark. And in my mind, I say, well, this would be a good opportunity for Christ to return because the sky looks weird. You've done that too. Your lights flicker in your house and you go, wait, is this it? Is this the moment? The Bible says, this is all the warning that you're going to get. It is 
coming. And so when Christ returns, the sky will pass away with a, with a rushing sound, and the stars themselves, which is what he's talking about when he refers to heavenly bodies, they will burn up and they will dissolve. And the other scriptures picture the sky rolling up like a, like a scroll. And then in this moment, the earth and everything that has been done in it will be exposed. That's what the English Standard Version says. Simply means that every person's deeds or actions will be found out. Does God not already know your deeds? Of course he does. But in that moment, you and I will be so laid bare that it will be impossible for us to continue the delusion that God doesn't know, that God doesn't see, that God doesn't care what I'm doing. Look, for Christians, the doctrine of divine judgment leads to purpose and perseverance. God desires that all of us who belong to Him would be honestly prepared. I want to borrow an illustration from another pastor. I'm going to borrow several other ideas from this same fellow. I want you to imagine two professors, two possible professors that you could have. One is the one who seems easier at first. He says, listen, I don't even care if you come to class. I'm going to give you a final exam. You're responsible for that. You can read at your own pace. You can gather the material on your own. I'm going to lecture, but you don't have to come. And at the outset, that almost always seems fantastic, awesome. It requires nothing of me. The other professor says, I want you to come every day. And I'm going to lecture, and you keep up, and you follow along with the reading. But you should know on the front end that I could give a pop quiz on any day. And everything in you would almost always prefer that first professor, because you'll tell yourself, I can goof off, and eventually, when the day comes, well, then I'll be ready. But the other professor is actually the one who helps you learn the material. Because he requires your attention every single day. You've got to live prepared. And so in his class, you want your conscience clean every time you walk in the door. Okay, maybe I don't have it all together today. But I'm, I'm certainly not going to hide my ignorance. I'm going to go to him. I'm going to say, hey, I need a little help here. Because it's your honesty that keeps you from being exposed on the day of the pop quiz or even the final exam for that matter. In his class, what you do is you you actually bring your failures to light very quickly because, because it's when you bring the failures to light that those get resolved. That's why the Lord explains his coming this way. In fact, that's how verse 9 and verse 10 connect. Because honesty... And his class is akin to the repentance of verse 9. It's the one path that keeps you from being exposed or found out, verse 10, on the day of the Lord. I wonder if you are living that way. Would you be content if your thoughts and actions from this morning were to be found out before the night comes.
And if you would keep the end in mind, you would live a pattern that's consistent in repentance and faith. It doesn't mean you would always be perfect, but you would be so quick to bring it to light, to strive to live in such a way that if your deeds were found out, well, I've been honest. I've repented. I'm prepared. The doctrine of divine judgment leads to purpose and perseverance. As Christ transforms you, you become honestly prepared, but also wholly hopeful. I'm going to read verse 11 through 13 together, and I want to explain why. Verse 11 says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So the answer is obvious. The fact that God will expose all would motivate anyone who belongs to the Lord to be holy in their behaviors and actions. Look at verse 12. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. It's kind of a strange phrase. How do you wait for and hasten the coming day? Look at verse 13. But according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You see, there's two types of people in the world. There's the person who dreads the coming day of the Lord, and then there's the person who wants to hasten it so that it would come more quickly. And most of you are saying, "Mm, I think there's a third, and I think I'm the third. Yes, I want him to come, but maybe not quite yet. No, the text actually says there's only two. And it is those who dread the day of the Lord who dread it because they've been wrestling with God over his issue of power and control and authority. In fact, they've been living under the serpent's original lie that to surrender to the Lord is to lose your life. And so the day of the Lord for them is the day in which they will finally have to see and face the fact, I really don't have any power. I really don't have any control On that day, the issue of authority is finally answered once and for all, and there will be no other questions. It's the day in which the ungodly are proven weak and powerless and under God's authority forever. It's the day in which you suddenly realize that this whole cosmic story was actually about God and His glory, and it was never really about you or me. And yet human history is filled with individuals who tried to put themselves as the lead actor in the play. And so when the day of the Lord comes, they will finally realize, I actually had a very insignificant role to play. And yet I lived my entire life as if I was the the star, as if it was all about me. That's actually why they dread it. Because it's a day of great realization. It's a day of great humiliation and defeat because they thought so much of themselves and they thought so little of the the king. But then there's those who would hasten the day of the Lord. And to be clear, this is the way the Bible speaks. If you belong to Christ, that's you. The day of the Lord for you and for me is meant to be positive, which is why the Lord calls us to be holy, hopeful. You and I are are active participants in the cosmic story, but it's not our cosmic story. 
Through the power of the blood of the cross and the Holy Spirit of God, you have been saved from your sins in order to live as if every day really is the day of the Lord because it is. You see, a sincere follower of Christ knows this is really about God and his glory. Why in the world would you and I strive to be more holy? Why would we strive to be more godly in our actions? Because I'm not the lead actor in this cosmic drama. God is. I've been called to play a part that simply accentuates his glory by living today as if I am one who reflects the power and the wonder of a king who saves the least. The king who wrote the play in which we live. The king who says, I have the lead role. The king about whom creation and judgment are meant to point. How do I wait for? How do I hasten the coming day of the Lord? It starts by knowing your role in the cosmic drama. Here's what I mean. Many Christians have Christ in their lives like this. I've got my plans. I've got my good job. My spouse, my kids, my white picket fence. I would like Jesus to be a part of my story. Others don't have all those things. But they sure would like to have all those things. And so when they find themselves struggling to get all of those things, they presume that perhaps Jesus could come alongside and make all of those wishes come true, suddenly, suddenly bring the things that haven't worked to a place of working. But you see, don't you, in, in both scenarios, Christ is a supporting actor in a play that's about you. That would actually make the coming day of the Lord a terrifying day. Do you want to wait for and hasten the coming day of the Lord? Then live like this is the day of the Lord right now. Because the Bible says it is. He is the center of the story. Think of yourself as a supporting actor. In fact, that's what holiness and godliness is. It's saying daily, no to your want to be the lead. It's no to my fleshly desire to be the center of the stage. It's, it's no to every evil desire that would wage war against his rightful place. It's saying yes to his position and his authority and his reign the world thinks the concept of holiness is so negative. You're going to become sour and judgmental and awkward. That is not what holiness is. Holiness is increasing freedom from slavery. Holiness is living in the fellowship with which you were made to fellowship. It's becoming more like the character and the purity of the one who desires to have fellowship with the likes of you or me. Holiness is living a life of purpose with a clean conscience. If you hear that, 
And there is something in you that longs for more of it. Perhaps you were made for another place. Perhaps you belong to Jesus. Because if the idea of your remaining sin grieves you and disappoints you, if the inconsistencies of what you know to be true and how you live in light of that truth are troubling, Peter would say, holiness is for you. Holiness is your longing. Because in Christ, you've been called to it. Do you think God does not see and recognize the tension that you sit in today? Well, I know I'm called to be that. I'm so wildly inconsistent. Well, that's why verse 13 connects your coming hope to your current pursuit of holiness. Be hopeful because God has redeemed you to live in a new home, a place where righteousness dwells. Look at verse 13. Peter places the emphasis of the passage on the word new. And he very literally says, new heavens and earth, new. The flood of Genesis 6 through 9 did not annihilate the earth. It cleansed it and made it new. The Bible gives us clues that the fire which is coming upon the earth will cleanse it, will make it new. God will restore what evil and sin have marred. Where do I get this? As Scripture interprets Scripture, we can use Isaiah 65, 66, Revelation 21, 22, even Romans chapter 8, where it tells us that the creation groans in pain, waiting for the day when God will free it from the bondage that you and I and Adam and Eve caused it to sit under. God promises that His people were made for that place. We were made for a home of righteousness where your sin and mine is removed and they can never curse his world again. The doctrine of divine judgment leads to purpose and perseverance. As Christ transforms you, you become honestly prepared, wholly hopeful, finally diligently stable. I want to make a quick comment about the reference to Paul's letters in verse 15 and 16. Very likely, the Apostle Paul wrote to these exact same readers in these exact same churches. And it is somewhat possible that those false teachers who had come in are twisting Paul's teachings upon grace. And they're saying, mm, see, you can it's grace. You just do whatever you want to do. Paul spoke, says Peter, about the end and coming judgment and the return of Christ and the fact that grace always leads to growth. But this is seemingly a quick side note, but it's actually a profound comment that is internal evidence about the reliability of the Scriptures. Peter's writing in the mid-60s A.D. Did you notice what he says? Paul's writings are Scripture. He puts them on the same par with all of the Old Testament scriptures. And then, of course, if a grand editor came along and penciled this in later on, a grand editor would never say something like, well, you know, Paul's writings are hard to understand. 
You'd say, well, Paul's writings are easy. They're wonderful. You should follow them like you follow mine. My point is this. Within 30 years of Jesus' ascension, the writings of the apostles are circulated and they're passed as authority in the church, which contradicts absolutely everything that liberal scholars say about the New Testament. That someone else, not the apostles, wrote these things that the letters aren't even agreed upon, which ones are Scripture, which ones are not. That the Christian doctrine takes about 300 years to finally come together. That there is some grand editor who lives at some point, and he reworks the whole narrative and the letters to make it come together cohesively. Peter says, no, everything that Paul says is Scripture, and he and I agree on these same things. Now, it's a side note. Look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. If you've been with us from the beginning of 2 Peter, you start realizing he's he's ending the letter with the exact same vocabulary that he started with. Diligence applied to your own growth in godliness is in fact the path that leads you to greater stability in your walk with Christ. Chapter 1 verse 5, apply all diligence to add Christian virtue to your faith. Chapter 1 verse 10, be all the more diligent to make your call and election sure. And then likewise this phrase without spot or blemish, it's a contrast to the false teachers in chapter 2 who are blots and blemishes on the church. Do you have a diligent focus on your growth in godliness? The fact is you are going to be found by Christ on the day of his return. What will you do with those facts? Do you live in such a way that you are not only going to be found by him, as verse 14 says, but also found in him. In other words, does your pursuit of holiness evidence that you are Christ's and he is yours, that he dwells in you? Four times in chapter 3, the apostle calls his readers beloved. He isn't talking to the world, he's talking to the church. He's talking to the bride of Christ. He's talking to you. Given everything he said. That those who try to deceive God's people will be destroyed. That God is coming to judge the world. That it is only those who grow in holiness, who have peace with God. Pick up at verse 17. You, therefore, beloved, knowing all of that, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You see, what Peter says is that the antidote to apostasy, the antidote to to walking away from the Christian faith is not simply resisting bad teaching. It's growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus I've pastored now long enough that when I did this particular part of the text, I thought of two men who had been officers in a church that I pastored. They sat under the preaching 
the teaching of the Bible week after week after week. It wasn't that they didn't put themselves around the Scriptures. They just never really cared about godliness. And so I'm reminded of those two. Because having cared so little about godliness, they are now no longer a part of the church. In my former life as a sales guy, I had a sales manager who would say to me and all the other people on his team, he'd say, listen, in sales, if you aren't growing, you're dying. And whatever truth there is to the world of sales, it is infinitely more true in your walk with Christ. Not that you can lose your salvation, but you and I are going to live and walk through a world of trials, a world of temptations, a world of sin, a world of suffering. You and I are consistently buffeted by lies and deception. Peter says a pattern of growth is actually the only way to stabilize your faith in this barren land. But precious people, you just don't grow in godliness by osmosis. Yes, we do believe that sanctification is by grace. But you grow by diligence. Is that you? Just assess where you are. I'm on a path that will lead me to greater stability. Would I say with honestly honesty that I really am diligent in my pursuit of growth? And if not, then would you be helped to begin today with the, the end in mind? To rethink your place and priority to give the day of the Lord its due because it's a fact. What will you do with that fact? The doctrine of divine judgment leads to purpose and perseverance. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would use your word to minister to your people that in this scripture you would comfort the afflicted and afflict us where we are comfortable. We pray, Father, that you would draw us near to the Lord Jesus. And I pray that you would receive the remainder of our worship even as you fix our eyes upon him. In whose name we pray, amen.